This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 4th, 2023. Current federal tax developments is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're doing this update here again today from Phoenix. We're going to talk about a few things that have happened here recently, a bit busier week than we've had recently. First, we're going to look at the fact that FinCEN has finalized the extension of the due date for the initial beneficial ownership interest reports for entities created in 2024. We had discussed the proposed extension a few months back, basically about two months back, and uh, FinCEN made that official this week. We also have a tax court ruling this week on self-employment tax for individuals who are limited partners under state law. And the court held that they are not automatically covered by the exemption from self-employment income found in 1402A13. And we'll discuss why the court decided that the term used in that section does not automatically bring in a state law limited partner and how that impacts decisions in cases that involved LLCs, LLPs, and the like. We're also going to talk about the Office of Special Responsibilities release of a due diligence alert to practitioners on FBAR filings. We'll note as well the IRS announced this week the date for the annual business modernized e-file shutdown. That happens every year in December, so we now know the date and time for the shutdown this year. We have the IRS denying a request for automatic accounting method change late election relief. And why in this case, even though we've seen the IRS grant such relief at other times in the past, maybe speculating the reason why this one did not get approved. And finally, we'll take a look at the tax court interpreting provision added by Congress in 2021 to decide what Congress meant by having a, you know, having basically a tax court, tax court filing locations inaccessible on the date a petition is to be filed. We'll talk about how that broke in a taxpayer-friendly direction this week from the tax court. So let's start talking about this financial, you know, FinCEN, so the Financial Crimes Enforcement Networks, uh, beneficial ownership information reporting uh, in system that was added by the Corporate Transparency Act by Congress back in 2020, and which has now become officially uh, part of the law, will become an issue we we'll have to deal with beginning in 24. This was the FinCEN's attempt to give us some breaks for entities that are formed in 2024. Now, as you may have been aware, under the law Congress passed, the uh, original amount, the original due dates for the initial reports would have been January 1st, 2025 for an that was in existence as of December 31st of this year. But then for any entity formed after December 31st of 23, the due date for the initial report would have been 30 days after the entity is recognized by the Secretary of State or equivalent office in the state in question. Now, there had been some complaints that, well, first thing is that's an awfully short run. That means an entity that comes into existence at the end of 23 and has the Secretary of State recognize it before the end of the year ends up being able to wait till January of 25 to file its report, at least January 1st of that year. While an entity that's formed a couple of days later would be filing their report in early February. Well, FinCEN decided that 
okay, for 2024, this initial year, we're going to push that due date back by 60 days. So it will be 90 days. Now, the proposed rule said that would be for 2024 only. We get to 25, it would be 30 days. And essentially no other change. We'd go to the strict law 30-day rule, beginning with entities that are formed January 1st, 2025 or later. A lot of comments came in that suggested that should be changed, that there should be this longer period to file the initial report should be granted more generally, maybe even permanently uh, by the, you know, in essence, in this situation. But FinCEN rejected that. They, they decided, nope, that's not what they're going to do. Now, doing this, so we have essentially the proposed rule enacted with no change. So bottom line, entities that are formed prior to the end of this year still have to January 1st of 2025 to file that initial report. Entities that are formed in 2025 or later will have 30 days from the date they're recognized. That's also no change from what we had before. But only for entities formed in 2024, so that is that the Secretary of State of the relevant state or the equivalent to the Secretary of State who handles this sort of registration, uh, when they either formally notify the entity that they've been recognized or they effectively make it a public record at that point, say put it on their website, that you would have 90 days now instead of 30 days. Okay, so that's it. They've also now updated their materials, which they have online at www.fincen.gov BOI. And that's where they have information, some summary details, some summary information, some various handouts you could give to clients, a 56-page publication. All of these things now have been updated to reflect the 90-day deadline for the filing the initial report for those entities that are formed in 24. They also updated their FAQs on that page. So all of that did get updated at that point. And that, as I noted, will include that 56-page small entity guide. We'll, you know, get that into the mix as well. So in any event, we now have that. The downside of this is this would have been the perfect place for FinCEN to have granted more you know, broader relief. You may remember that the AICPA and all the state CPA societies had signed a letter requesting that FinCEN delay this program by a year. Had they been going to go down that path, I would have thought this was the perfect place to do it. But it right now, we don't see any such relief coming. And we are now within a month of the date. In theory, we're supposed to be able to start filing these reports. And probably with this 90-day rule, we're essentially within four months of the date that the first actual filing will need to go in. So keep your eye on this thing. There may still be developments, but yeah, it's it looks like we might end up having to do it. The next case is a pretty interesting one and one that I had some ideas on going way back, uh, the concept here. And this is Sorbonne Capital Partners LP et al. versus Commissioner. And this is a case number, a reported tax court case, 161 TC number 12. It was released on December 28th of 2023. And this is the first case where the tax court had to determine if somebody was a limited partner under a limited partnership formed under a state's limited partnership statute. So literally, it is what's defined as a limited partner under state law. 
does that automatically mean they qualify to be treated as a limited partner? And this term will become big in the, in the opinion, as such, which is a def term used in section 1402A13. Generally, 1402A13 provides that if you are a partner in a partnership, but you're a limited partner as such, and I've got to keep putting those two words on the end because that's going to be important from the court's perspective, then generally, except for amounts received by you as guaranteed payments for services actually performed, you do not pick up the other items flowing out of the partnership as part of self-employment income, uh, even if otherwise they would be included under the general rule of 1402A. So they, you know, they're not exempted for other reasons. They're just like, you know, you have an operating business and the flow through income is subject to SC tax generally if you are a partner in a partnership, but there's a special limited partner rule at 1402A13. We have already know that the Rankmeyer decision from 2011 and then later decisions such as Castigliola, uh, they imposed a functional test on individuals who were members of an LLC, LLP, or other such various entities. Now, key thing to note about that, under state law, individuals who are members in an LLC or LLP are not limited partners. And I say that because the states have limited partnership statutes, and that is a very specific entity type. LLCs were formed and basically were structured in Wyoming years ago, specifically to work around the problems we had with limited partnerships um, to attempt to still be able to get full liability protection, but not have to expose one partner to basically exposure for all liabilities. We didn't have to have a general partner member. And LLPs are similarly wrappers around these otherwise general partnerships. There are various other structures. So those weren't limited partners under state law. Now, I thought that was interesting back in the day before 2011. I used to have some back and forth discussions, especially with Lynn Nichols. Um, and uh, he, he had a different view on this than I did. I thought going back to some case law from the two, around 2000, where we had found that a limited partner, uh, essentially, if you were a limited partner or not, uh, was determined by whether you were a state law limited partner for 1402. And there was a question, you know, one particular case, could somebody be a limited partner? Uh, could somebody essentially be passive, have passive activity income coming from their interest in a partnership because it was a case of a general partnership and a partner was just a money person only, did no participation whatsoever. Could that person nevertheless still be subject to self-employment tax? And the court had said, I, I understand you're not doing anything. You're acting like a limited partner. But, you know, we're saying that, sorry, you're not a limited partner under state law. The general rule is you have to pay tax on this. So I had kind of argued based on that, that my concern at the time was that we, you know, and we did have the IRS and the uh, and the regulations they attempted to get out, what were referred to as the stealth tax regulations by then Speaker Gingrich, uh, where they had attempted to oppose a functional test on everybody, whether it was an LLC, LLP, etc. And Congress, of course, told them not to do that for a year, then forgot they said anything about it. But we never did get regs out on that. 
So my concern was that LLC members, since they weren't limited partners by definition, and the general rule under 1402 is that partners pay self-employment tax on trade or business income that's not otherwise excluded under 1402A's various list of potential exclusions, that you know, if you were a money member of an LLC, you might get stuck with SE tax if we go down this path. Now, Rankmeyer and Castigliola impose what's called a functional test. The question is, what do you do inside the partnership? Are you in there working? Because they determined that what Congress was after back when they put 1402A13 in was going after partners who weren't really doing anything in the partnership. But ended up getting their interest trying to qualify for Social Security. That was the whole point of it. So they decided that had Congress had LLCs exist at that time and all these other various LL entities existed at the time, that Congress would have included them as part of this because their concern was with being able to invest and not do anything. So, you know, they, they would have used a functional test there. Well, if you're an LLC member, but you're actually active in the entity, that would have been subject to self-employment tax, right? You know, they would have made that distinction because they weren't concerned with the mere fact whether or not you were liable for debts. That wasn't really the issue. The issue was, were you doing anything? Now, that's all well and good, but now the question comes up, okay, but let's say that Rankmeyer, instead of being an LLP, let's say Rankmeyer had been a limited partnership or Castigliola had been a limited partnership. You know. Could they have escaped self-employment tax? You know, or Castigliola especially, because it would have been very much structured like what we're going to have in this case, where they pay out guaranteed payments to the various partners and they pay SE tax on that, but they're not paying SE tax on the flow-through income. Right? So in this case in question, you know, the, you know, do we have that? Would limited partner status have changed it? Because we saw that old law that said limited partner for 1402 was whether or not you were a state law limited partner. Now, I admit the context it was used in was where somebody was trying to get out of paying SE tax and they weren't in a state law limited partnership. But still, essentially, you know, if that's a definition, that's a definition. In this case, the partnership was formed was a limited partnership under state law. In this case, state law would allow partners who perform services for the partnership to be treated as limited partners. That was not a disqualifying event for limited partner treatment. And that's also a change that occurred even by the time of the stealth tax regulations. We had some states that had modified their limited partnership laws. And in essence, various people were trying to use that structure, therefore, to escape self-employment tax by having a structure very much like we have in this case under Sarabin Capital. Okay, now each limited partner was paid a guaranteed payment, which was shown as self-employment income on their K-1, and then an allocation of the remaining income that didn't go out as guaranteed payments to the various partners, and that amount was not shown as subject self-employment tax for the, you know, for the general, for the partners, limited partners, and the general partner was, as is quite often the case, a basically an LLC or equivalent of an LLC, so essentially with very thin capitalization. So effectively, nobody was liable, but we did have this particular structure. Now, the tax court spent a lot of time on this term 
as such. Turns out as such was a big thing to them because the actual section 1402A13, rather than referring to somebody who's, uh, who's covered by it as a limited partner, says limited partner comma as such. Our question then becomes, what does as such mean? And the court does point out that when you're analyzing the text of a statute, you are certainly to attempt, if at all possible, to give meaning to every word. It is assumed that Congress had some reason of saying limited partner as such instead of saying just limited partner. And that's, the, that's what they turned their attention to. And what they decided was that as such means a partner cannot merely be a limited partner in name, but they must be a limited partner as the term was understood back when this part of the law was passed. This could be really interesting uh, on appeal. Let's say that. So therefore, right. So because of that, even though you have a limited partnership, the state law recognized as an LP, you still must apply the functional test as was true in Rankmeyer and Castigliola, that those functional tests, we look at how much time do the partners spend, you know, are they involved, are they service partners, all that sort of background has to be tested, and that will determine whether or not they're considered a limited partner as such to be able to get this exemption from self-employment income. Now, this decision was on a motion for summary judgment. Because of that, the court didn't decide in these facts whether these partners were actually going to be considered to be uh, you know, self-employed or not. They're going to be considered limited partners or not. That's to be discovered in a later case, but it probably doesn't look good. That said, I'm kind of thinking that there's a really good chance that we're going to find that this is going to be on appeal it may or may not be upheld. This will be very interesting to watch. I also wouldn't be surprised if you might even be able to get the Supreme Court to take a look at this, in essence, to do this once and for all. Now, my concern is back to my concern I had back before Rankmeyer. If a decision comes down from the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court that says literally, nope, Limited partner for 1402 means you must be a, you know, you're a limited partner under state law. If that's the true meaning of that term, then we're back to potential problems for LLCs and LLPs. That, you know, the money people there may very well get stuck with SE income if courts were to rule it's automatically how you have to follow this. So that suggests that since I doubt the Supreme Court will want to do that, my guess is we're going to see a more nuanced, or maybe Supreme Court doesn't, says Congress, this is your mess, clean it up, you know, and force them to come up with some of their own definitions. But it would be something to watch, certainly currently. There definitely are other cases moving in different areas of the country on this issue. Uh, whether this will slow those cases down or whether people push forward is open. And also whether this gets appealed is an open question. But it is a decision that Congress had, and you should keep that in mind, especially if you have been using the theory that, well, we formed a limited partner under the laws of our state, limited partnership. And so because of that, even though we have these people performing services for the partnership, 
it's no problem we can still get them out of SE income on their flow through income. Yeah, you're going to want to re-read this case and see where you go because as a reported tax court case, as it stands right now, unless it's taken up on appeal to the Court of Appeals, uh, your client's going to get this decision if they go to tax court. As a reported case, that's the way that works. So be aware of that background. On the 29th of November, um, the Office of Fresh Responsibility issued a alert. So an alert from the Office of from the Office of Fresh Responsibility in issue number 2023-12, which came out November 29th, entitled Practitioner Diligence Obligations and the Report of Foreign Bank and Financial Accounts. FBAR discussed what you as a practitioner must do. And they specifically talk about this, even if you are somebody who is not going to prepare the FBAR report. Maybe you feel you're not competent to do so, which they do say you have to be sure competent to do so. If you're going to prepare the report, maybe just choose not to do them. But if you're preparing the 1040, OPR believes you have an obligation um, to step forward and do something about this as well. So they said as part of your return preparation, you should inquire of clients about such accounts if you're engaged to prepare their income tax returns. Do they have foreign bank accounts? Well, part of that is obviously because, uh, you know, the income has to be reported anyway. So that's part of due diligence for the return. But you also have that question on the bottom of Schedule B, which asks them, do they have to file anything? And we should point out, we've discussed them here a couple of times, that, you know, there have been court cases where if that's checked, they don't need to file these things. The mere fact that somebody signed off on a return, the client does, that had the Schedule B questions checked saying we don't need to file FBAR, that's been considered willful failure to file the returns because the theory was the client's responsible for what's on there. So, yeah, you probably absolutely need to inquire of the clients if they have these accounts and, you know, and what you need to do and explain the FBAR rules to them that it, it also doesn't matter if the account's not theirs if they have signature authority, they still have to report these accounts on FBAR. Now, when you ask the client, they do point out under the, under the knowledge requirement that generally you're allowed to accept it. If a client says, I have no bank accounts outside the United States, I have no financial accounts outside the United States, you're allowed to accept that statement unless you become aware in any way, shape, or form that the answers are incorrect or maybe incorrect or incomplete. And if so, you need to do more inquiry in that area. And as always, if you do determine that they have unfiled forms from the past, which you could, you're going to have to inform them of the risk of noncompliance and steps that could be taken going forward to solve the problem. And again, it doesn't matter that you're not engaged per the FBAR. You don't even plan to ask to be engaged per the FBAR your requirement to notify the client per LPR still exists. And on the standards for tax returns and other documents, essentially in that case, you must advise the client of any penalties or the ability to disclose their position to reduce those penalties. And again, while you're not obligated to prepare the FBAR reports to make that clear for the client, even though you, know, you still have to notify them of their filing requirement and the consequences of failing to do so. Now, as I said, this is important because quite often clients don't fill in the organizers and don't answer the questions. 
I think it is dangerous, and FBAR is pointing it out here, I should say FBAR is, that if you just kind of assume they don't have a foreign bank account, that could come back to haunt you. And I say that from experience, not that I've had it come back to haunt me, but I have many cases been surprised the clients who answer yes when I ask if they have a bank account offshore. It's not always been people, you know, you might think if somebody was, let's say, they immigrated to the U.S., they've got family back in wherever they were originally from, then you might say, okay, that's not that unusual, mom, dad. They want somebody to be able to sign on the return, sign for the uh, checking account or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, they, they might have that. Or they go back there every so often, so it's just easier to have, you know, to have a bank account in euros uh, just to handle anything you're going to pay during the time you go back there to visit family. So, you know, you might expect that. But sometimes out of the blue, you'll get a client that doesn't appear to have any connection with anything offshore, but they somehow have a foreign, you know, financial account that needs reporting. So, yeah, you want to check into that. On November the 30th, the IRS, in the quick alerts for tax professionals, uh, sent one out entitled Business Modernized file Production Shutdown. And this is the shutdown dates um, that come into play every year for IRS's Modernized file. Now, you may remember we already had the individual shutdown. That, that's a done deal. It's been done for a while, right? We lost that back in mid-November that you can't file individual electronically filed forms at this point. And you won't be able to do those until they reopen for individual electronic filing, which probably comes in the latter part of January of 24. And that's somewhat up to the uh, up to Congress because the bottom line is Congress needs to, you know, are they going to change the law? And also probably are they going to fund everything? That could also be a problem that could hit us for when we can get e-filing up and running again. So we'll have to take a look at that. But for business returns, you still can submit those. So if you want to submit a business return, you can still submit electronically. And that's not that unusual. The problem with business returns is, as you should know, they have fiscal years quite often. And so it's not like the individuals where, yes, you could have a fiscal year individual. But the reality is that fiscal individuals are rather rare. And so it's not going to affect many people, but fiscal year business entities are really, really pretty normal. So generally, the IRS tries to not have this shutdown go over a 15th of a month. But because there is time they need to redo the computers, they can't avoid one potential problem, which you need to be aware of. Um, the real problem is extended trust returns or estate returns, more estate than trust, uh, on income tax returns. There, the problem is electronically filing that 1041 becomes a bigger problem uh, because, remember, the, there will be one of those, you know, a set of those fiscal year there that's going to come due on basically December 31st. I think it is if you have a March year end. Right, we'll kick you back to December 31st. Yeah, it makes sense because that's three months after, you know, what would have been the normal year end, which is September 30. So that's it. So they're going to stop accepting electronically filed returns, basically, you know, the request, sending them up at 11:59 a.m. Now be careful. We've got a.m. and p.m. in play for two different things here. 
Eastern Time on December 26, 2023. Franti returns. That's somewhat interesting because obviously they're going to be closed for the 25th. So they will, you know, so they're closed. Obviously, they'll still accept electronic on the 25th. But it means, you know, everybody comes back to the office on the 26th. If you have a business return that hasn't been submitted yet, and you're trying to get it submitted there before the close down comes, you need to make sure you beat 11 noon, basically 11.59 a.m. Eastern time. That means, for instance, in, you know, for those who are in the West Coast, right, you're in the Pacific time zone. Well, that means you basically have to have it in by 8.59. And if you're in Hawaii, well, you know, you better be a real early riser because you're going to need to beat 6 a.m. To have it submitted on time so you get it processed you're probably going to go back to paper filing if not if you have a due date that won't be done before we get back and up and running again now they will keep sending acknowledgments for another 12 hours but any acknowledgments not received by 11:59 p.m on the 26th will not be available until mef reopens for 2024 filings in january now it's kind of interesting and there's not much guidance on what happens if you submitted it. And for whatever reason, they don't get around to publishing and returning uh, the acknowledgements of acceptance. So you submit it just before it closes down. The acceptances don't get generated. So even though you check in 11.59 p.m. on the, you know, 11.59 p.m. Eastern time on the 26th, you still don't have an answer as where it's accepted. Since the return is not really filed until accepted, it's kind of an interesting mess about whether do we just, you know, are we allowed to just wait until January, right? Whatever date then to see if it got accepted. If it's rejected, do we still have the same time to fix it? Uh, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't had that problem because I haven't had anything that goes over that date, but it is one that's theoretically interesting to think about. Next up is a PLR 2023-48007 issued on December 1st. And this is interesting because the IRS in this private letter ruling denies the taxpayer's request for an extension of time to file for an automatic accounting method change. They're looking at a couple of the small business accounting method change options uh, to not have to follow along with 263 Cap A Unicap reporting and also to do the special inventory reporting under 472. Right. So what it is, the taxpayer wished to make an automatic change of accounting methods under those two provisions. And they plan to file because file the returns with the form 3115, because these are both automatic changes that if you meet the requirements, it can be automatically changed. And for automatic changes, what you have to do is timely file your return. With your original return, submit one copy of the 3115. And then send a second copy of the 3115 to these days, the IRS in Ogden. The various offices, they change from time to time. So you always got to double check where they're going. They used to go to D.C. I think we're in Cincinnati for a while. So you always double check that. But they were ready and able to do that. And in fact, they went ahead and they had the return prepared by a CPA firm. Who it appears prepared a 3115 prepared all the information, sent the return to the taxpayer, and it was going to be electronically filed. So they sent the return to the taxpayer. 
and sent the electronic filing forms with it and presumably told them, you know, you need to sign these so we can get the return filed. Now, for whatever reason, the taxpayer did not return the electronic filing authorization forms. Okay. Well, that is a problem because obviously the return can't be filed until those are returned and the return was not filed. But you might wonder, you know, did the CPA firm contact them and try to say, hey, you know, we need these forms. We don't have them yet. You know, I, I know every year I got to chase down a few where somebody's sitting on them. It's like we're coming up on the due date. It's like, you know, I, I realize you're checking the return or whatever you're doing. Usually they're not. Usually they just forgot, you know, and aren't doing it. But, you know, can you please send me these forms? We need to have the electronic filing authorization. Now, the CPA's due date monitoring system wasn't triggered. And this is a little weird because somehow their due date system, they didn't get it started and going until they actually got the authorization form in hand. My guess is, I guess all they tracked was if they had submitted the return, did they make sure they got the rejects, right? Did it get accepted? Did it get rejected? So for whatever purpose, right, the CPA firm didn't have anything that was flat telling them, hey, these guys are coming up on the due date and they've not yet submitted their form and that's a problem. So, you know, that, 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 that was an issue that we had. Now, the manager who handled much of the client's work left the CPA firm employment before the due date. The remaining people at the firm assumed that the return had been properly handled. Of course, it hadn't. That was our big problem, right? Nobody done that. So I guess the assumption probably was that this was a manager in the firm, that they had handled the client's work, and I suspect in the past they had babysat the client and were used to calling them and getting that sign form back. Well, this manager left the firm. A lot of people have been leaving the CPA firm in public accounting. Right, tax work, it's gotten a little bit crazy over the past few years, and a lot of people have gotten burned out. So whatever, this person leaves. But it appears nobody actually went and checked to make sure that you know the all of this stuff been handled. Everybody just assumed it had, and of course it had. And they also noted that, you know, and they claimed in their request for relief, they told the IRS about all these things. And then their request for relief, they also noted that both the client and the CPA's firm's operations had been disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, including, you know, requirements or use of remote work requirements or strong suggestions that they have remote work. In most cases, CPA firms were considered essential. So generally, at least in the tax realm. You know, they obviously could have continued to work in the office, but we all know there were strong suggestions you don't. And there were, you know, various disruptions. And so all this was disrupted. And for all those reasons, we believe that we should be allowed a late election. Now, one problem was they did notice the error. So it was before the IRS noticed it. But they waited nearly a year, it appears. Now, the PLR is not clear. Are they saying it was a year after it should have been filed? Or are they saying they waited nearly a year after they discovered the problem? That's not totally clear. The latter would be more concerning than the former because it's possible they wouldn't have found out about it until just about a year. But in any event, it appears the IRS believes they, they delayed or they reapplied too late. And that was part of the problem. Okay. 
Now, what happened here, generally to get relief for a late filed election, if you don't meet one of the automatic criteria, there are what's called the six-month rule, where if you file, let's say, an election, there's some election that should have been filed with a return. It is established by regulation, not by the code, or actually, in this case, either one. And you, let's say you filed the return timely. So you filed it, you didn't go on extension. And then later you discover that, oh, we should have made this election. As long as you discover that prior to six months after the original filing date, the original unextended filing date, the fact that you've already sent a return in doesn't, doesn't mean you can't make the election. You're allowed to make the election following the requirements in the regulation during that six-month period. So obviously, and you don't need to be in a position to do a superseding return. Some people, of course, get really worried about that and saying, wait, you know, it's not, you don't need to keep superseding. It's probably not a bad idea to file an extension and be ready to do superseding because certain other things you can do. And there are some elections that have to go in by the due date of the return without extensions, the various other things in the play and some odd things. Yeah, basically it's a little bit more interesting, but you don't, you don't really need to worry about in this case, the fact you didn't go for an extension, you don't need a superseding return to do it. But if, if so, if you don't have that, then there's some called 12 month elections. This is a much more limited set of things, right? The six month covers everything. The 12 months covered a very limited list. One of the key ones there is a 74 election for a partnership. And there, so long as you do it within one year, within one year of the extended due date of the partnership, of the original return, then basically you can get automatic relief. And the nice thing about the two automatic relief provisions is you don't need to apply for and pay for a private letter ruling. Now, if you fail both of those, these guys did, they were outside of all their potential areas to make this work, uh, then what you have to do you know, is prove that A, you acted reasonably, you know, you had, you were reasonably good faith, good faith, you know, acted reasonably and in good faith. And then number two, that granting relief would not prejudice the interests of the government. Now, the problem here is the IRS decided that they had not established, and the terms that is used in the reg is unusual and compelling circumstances that these were not. I think a real problem was they were sitting on way too many errors, right? There are a whole bunch of things that should have caught this. It should have had it come up quicker, but none of them did. But we can speculate a little bit about maybe what part of this might have been fatal. I, I think a real problem here is the taxpayer's failure to execute the authorization. The date the return is due to be filed is not really set by, is, you know, is set by statute, not regulation. And the fact that they failed to file on time, um, that just looks like being sloppy, right? Not, 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 not really acting in good faith and taking reasonable business care to assure that your returns are filed on time. So I, I would not doubt that that was a, one of the big reasons why there's no relief. We also probably at least implied is the IRS felt they should have acted faster once they discovered the error, but they failed to do so. They sat on it. Who knows if they were debating whether or not they should wait on it. You know, yeah, they probably won't catch it, which they probably wouldn't, or whether some circumstance came up. Now, sometimes 
In a case like this, you may very well file. The circumstance that came up was a buyer showed up suddenly, and now the buyer wants this cleaned up. So that's why now they have to go to the IRS and ask, and now they've been turned down. Well, yeah, well, the IRS knows what you should have done, so you got to go back, do the prior returns the way you should have, pay any tax differences there, and then go ahead and make your change of method when you file this year's return then you can go ahead and make your change of method because they should still qualify for that. Finally, we have a tax court case here of Saul versus Commissioner, um, 161 TC number 13, second reported case in same week. This one came out on November 30. And this is looking at a provision, section 7451B, that Congress added in the infrastructure bill back in 2021. And this relief said, if the there'll be time filing relief for a petition filing with the tax court, if the filing location is closed, tax court filing location is closed on the due date for their for when they're going to file in. Now, in this particular case, we're going to have to ask a question: the way the law is written, does it only work if the taxpayer was planning to file at the location that's closed? And actually uses that location after it reopens, or do, you know, or 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 maybe does does it just not count if there were other ways? For instance, in the case we have here, while the office of the clerk of the tax court was closed on the day after Thanksgiving, you could still use the electronic filing system for the tax court petitions. And we should point out the clerk's office is in D.C. The taxpayer lived in Colorado. It seems wildly unlikely, and in fact, the taxpayer didn't, that the taxpayer would have walked the petition in to the clerk's office in D.C. So, you know, all these reasons suggest that that really had no impact on them being able to timely file. But do they still qualify for relief? Now, as I noted, the 90-day period ended on the day after Thanksgiving in 2022. And the building the tax court clerk's office was in was closed on that date because most businesses, you know, don't open. So there was nobody at the clerk's office on the day after Thanksgiving. And while that's not a federal holiday, the reality is you couldn't get to the clerk's office on that day, right? My guess is probably it's a building. Uh, maybe, you know, they may not pay for the security staff on that day to be down there to clear people coming in. I have no idea what the structure is, but in any event, the clerk's office was closed on that date. But you could still file electronically, and if you do what I would strongly suspect we all think the taxpayer is going to do if they don't file electronically, the petition, the post offices were open on that date too, so you could have easily mailed the return in. So that raises part of our question. So because we had those other options available, you know, essentially, do we really get this? Because you're supposed to get an extra 14 days if the if the filing, you know, if a filing location is closed, you're supposed to get an additional 14 days. So it's a nice extension. And this taxpayer mailed their petition in after the, you know, after basically the due date, the Friday after Thanksgiving, but well before what turns out to be a 15-day period expired because of other pushbacks in it. Well before the 15th day expired the taxpayer had actually gotten the petition in the hands of the tax court. Now, the IRS kind of argued, but I think nobody really argued this very much, 
It's kind of interesting, but essentially the petition had been filed late, right? And there's no question it was filed after the date that the petition, you know, that basically the 90-day letter said he had to file a petition by, and that therefore they said, look, it's late, you have no jurisdiction. The taxpayer did not object to that either, which is really interesting. But the court noted that they had this new rule. And with the just specific facts of this case, that the 90th day fell on the day after Thanksgiving, which was the day the clerk's office was closed, the tax court took this as an opportunity to take a look at that in a little more detail. And what the court found was the closings of the clerk's office was enough to trigger the extended period to file. It was not filed late. The fact that electronic filing was available, right? On that day, they could have electronically filed their petition and therefore had made the filing on that date was irrelevant. And what you find is actually the law itself, 7451B, tells us specifically that, you know, if, if an office is closed, and it defines offices as the office of the clerk, which is what was closed, and, you know, essentially the, uh, you know, the electronic filing options the tax court makes available. So it appears if either one is down, now what's going to be more interesting, especially with the electronic filing version is, what if it's only down for part of that day? Does it have to be down for the whole day or is it just a part? We still don't know about things like that, but we do know that the tax court said, at least in theory, if electronic filing was down all day, that would appear to give you the 15 days, without, the 14 days without question. And similarly, if the clerk's office is shut down for some reason on that date, you get your full 14-day additional time frame put in there. This hadn't been looked at since 2021 when it came to law, so the tax court decided to look at it in this case. So what it means is, yeah, the taxpayers treat as having filed their petition on time, so the case can go forward. Now, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society CPAs. Again, you can contact me, Ed Zollers, at currentfilltaxdevelopments.com. I also watch on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, um, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington to some extent, as well as watch the discussion forum for the Idaho Society CPAs. So otherwise, hopefully you're going to have a good week this week. I'm going to be out on the road a bit, so I'll be down there. I'll be down in Tucson this, this week too. Uh, for various reasons, our November dates got pushed to December. Uh, but I'll be down there talking about neat things in Tucson, uh, full tax update course, all those other things. So be down there this week. But otherwise, I should be back on Saturday, uh, which is in time for me to hopefully assemble up another, an update for the following week. So we should see you back a week from now with a new set of current federal tax developments.